Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the You Should Run podcast. I am Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. And I have been saying for a while now that the most important politics are happening on a state level, whether it's here in Pennsylvania, in uh, Missouri, if it's in Florida, everywhere. You see it from governors and legislatures. So on this podcast, I talk to people from every state, from Maine to Hawaii, Alaska to Florida, and I'm going back to a state I haven't done enough of, and that is South Carolina, to talk to someone who might be one of my new best friends, state representative, former prosecutor, mom, and lovely person, Spencer Wetmore. So Spencer, thanks so much for talking today. Hey, thanks for having me today. Did I get any of those things wrong? Like I ended with lovely person, and maybe I got that wrong, I don't know. Don't ask my husband on a Tuesday, but no, everything was perfect. Thanks. Okay, so I don't want to assume anything. Um, but you do have a really interesting professional and political career. And the thing I always ask people here is everyone that's in elected office or is running for elected office, um, they didn't start that way. There was a time when they like never thought they would get involved in politics. But yeah. when did you decide to go from, yes, I vote in elections, to taking um, politics more seriously whether it's running or being involved in the process? Yeah. You know, I think probably in terms of being involved, mm -hmm. like a lot of people, 2016 was a turning point for me. Um, you know, I think like a lot of people sort of maybe lazily assumed that Hillary Clinton would be elected. I remember thinking that I was going to come home. That was 2016, right? Time's yeah. running together. <laughs> but, uh, you know, sort of, had been excited to come home and watch the election, you know, watch with my daughters as the first female president was elected and all that was very exciting. Um, and I just remember when that didn't happen, thinking to myself, well, wait a minute, obviously I wasn't paying attention or I didn't work hard enough or I didn't do, you know, there's something I should have done. Um, at the time I was in local government, I actually worked um, as a city manager for a small town where I live outside of Charleston, um, city of Folly Beach. And so you know, at the time, I was very happy in my world. I, you know, was able to work on things like beach renourishment and, um, you know, managing the budget and managing, I had about 60 employees. And so at the time, I was pretty happy. You know, my, my youngest was, I don't know, I guess a year old at the time. And so I was sort of doing my thing, thinking that I was, you know, making a difference in my local community. Um, and you know, over the next couple of years, it became apparent that there was a lot going on at every level, right? Mm -hmm. State, local, federal, and just things I'd never thought about or looked at before. Um, and then an opportunity came available in 2019 with an open seat in the state house, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> now, um, I am in local government, so I have seen the Partisan and nonpartisan things, mostly nonpartisan, mm -hmm. non-political things mm -hmm. that happen on a local government basis. But when you got yeah. into that, you knew that you know South Carolina is not like local government in terms of the partisanship and the kinds of issues. Were were you prepared at that time for what to kind of do expect from your own local experience? No, I really wasn't. I, I'm so fortunate that my local government experience, and I tell people this all the time, uh, at least where I'm you know, where I'm from and, and the small town that I was with, you know, four or five people could come in and make a huge difference in the outcome of a local issue, right? And it was generally nonpartisan and generally, 
you know, something that we were sort of working for the good of the community on together. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, some very interested citizens could come in and make a huge difference. And so I guess I didn't fully realize the, the jump into state government would be so fundamentally different. Um, you know, now all of a sudden we're talking about big business interests and we're talking about, uh, you know, legislative priorities from a caucus agenda, not a strategic plan from your city. You know, this is now, now we're, now we're asking, okay, well, what's the Republican party national agenda and, and how does that impact South Carolina? You know, are we going to have to look at everything from guns to abortion to now ESGs and transgender books. I mean, you know, just whatever the issue of the day is, apparently that's our new priority. Right. It's frustrating to me, and I'm sure to you, because to me, being a Democrat is not necessarily about being liberal or taking, I mean, though it can be, or taking this position or that, but just to me, being a Democrat is about effective government and caring about government. And a lot of these issues that the other side's proposing, not that they're not important in some way, especially if you're you know, um, someone who is affected by those things, but it's not about governing. Is that your experience? Well, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty cynical. Uh, you know, my, my feeling is that fear sells. And so a lot of this agenda has been developed and hyped up rather than Mm -hmm. problem solved. You know, there's no, if it were about problem solving, we would have made some progress by now. And I'm, and that's not to say that, um, there aren't some legitimate issues in there. I know that, you know, there's some tools, right. That are, that are, you know, really important to a group of people. Uh, but for the most part, it's frustrating to me. I share that frustration because it, it feels a lot like we're not, you know, this is not an issue that's affecting most people's lives. This is, you know, this is one fringe issue that, that, that now we just spent three weeks debating because it was a sort of a chinned up issue, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I talked last, was it last year? Yeah, um, a, a few months ago to someone who's now a member of Congress, a state representative in Texas, a rather progressive, liberal uh, young woman who said, I never knew what C- um, critical race theory was. It wasn't like... She even bringing <laughs> yeah. it up. She's like, I, that's not, it's not like I was proposing something and they were a backlash. She had no idea what they were talking right. about. And it seems like there's a lot of right. us who like, I want to come in and help with healthcare. What, what, what are you talking about? Right. You're talking about space aliens right. on mountains. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, we're, we've got so many issues, especially down here in South Carolina where we've chronically underfunded our government for years. Now all of a sudden we've got, crumbling roads we've got schools in disrepairs teachers leaving in droves we've got all these real issues and yet you know we just spent all week debating whether or not somebody needs a permit to carry a gun right you know i don't get a lot of phone calls with people asking me that they they think that they don't have enough gun rights here in south carolina um, but that's what we spent our week debating. We spent the week before that debating critical race theory and the week before that debating abortion. Mm-hmm. And you know, what I, what I tell people is I don't think it, and maybe this is just unique to South Carolina, but I, I, I suspect it's more widespread than this. Um, I think most people think that their Republican member is moderate. 
right? Especially down here in Charleston or down here, you know, in these suburban districts, they've met their rep or they've met their person. They think, oh yeah, they were a super nice, you know, super nice person, you know, seemed super normal. But what they don't realize is that because the maps are so skewed in South Carolina and probably other places, each, every Republican is voting for these bills. Every Republican voted for open carry without a permit. Every Republican voted for a total abortion ban. Every Republican voted against, uh, you know, or voted for banning, uh, you know, the CRT boogeyman in our schools. And so realize how pervasive these ideas have become. This is the caucus agenda for the Republican Party. Now, I've talked with a number of legislators across the country, from Kansas to Alaska and Ohio, and it seems like, at least on paper for a lot of them, there are almost three parties. There is the Democratic Party, which mm-hmm. cares about governing local issues, yep. you know, obviously some social issues as well and other things, but that seems to be like their goal of getting government. And then there are the business Republicans and the mm-hmm. Fox News, Newsmax Republicans. And the only exactly. way you can get things done is building like some sort of coalition is that what you're finding in South Carolina as well? Yes. Uh, you know, I find that it's been really, really interesting because in South Carolina, the Democrats decreased by five this, this last election, which out of 124 members in the House, we now have 36 Democrats. Mm. So we are, by all definitions, a super minority, right? Or, or I guess, conversely, the Republicans have a super majority. And... It would, it would seem that that would be such a negative walking in. But what that really means is the Republican caucus grew to a point that it's almost ungovernable. Hmm. Um, and so now leadership or what you kind of refer to as this business Republican, they need the Democrats more than they ever have before to, to accomplish things. And you also sometimes see the Democrats joining with the far right on certain issues you know, when we were debating the gun bill this week, we had a lot of, um, you know, concern about how the bill was going to impact people of color. You know, was was open carry going to be used as a, as a situation for, uh, you know, profiling or pretextual stops? And you saw the Democrats in the Freedom Caucus joining together to add in amendments in that regard. And so you're exactly right. It is almost like three cohorts. Um, and, and on each issue, we build a different consensus. For example, medical marijuana is going to come up this year. And again, you're going to see the Freedom Caucus, which is sort of thought of as the far right, joining with the Democrats. Um, you know, I think it's changing the game a little bit down here because traditionally the Republican Party has been very centered on uh, you know, the religious right, religious, you know, Christian-based issues like abortion, you know, opposition to gambling and things like that, and, and marijuana and, you know, other things like that. But I'm seeing a shift this year. And so it's, I really think you're right. I think that at some point we are going to experience a realignment. And I don't think it's that far off. Um, you know, I think the establishment Republican Party thinks, and and maybe they're right, that you know, they'll be able to sort of recruit more moderate members next time to sort of round out their ranks. But, you know, whether or not that's successful, at some point there's, you know, there's, even if that, let's say that is successful, and now the folks who are what I would call the Freedom Caucus or the far right are 
are going to are going to say, well, this isn't my Republican Party anymore. So whether they form a new party or successfully take over the Republican Party and business Republicans form a new party, I wouldn't be surprised to see a realignment. Now, speaking of business versus social, when it comes to either party, um, here in Pennsylvania, our new governor Josh Shapiro, um, part of his um, campaign was he was saying, "Look, you look at North Carolina. What happened when they pushed some far right bills?" on LGBT issues and some places on abortion issues. Businesses didn't want to invest there. And exactly. we're going to keep that from happening here so we can keep business. So he was saying it from a social perspective for people uh, like me, um, but also to businesses like you don't want that. Are right. you seeing that impact now And uh, as, a le- as a legislator? Like, hey, it's not just that I disagree with those issues, but when we do that, we're going to have a lot of companies who are going to go, a couple states over instead where they're going to be able to attract workers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because the Republicans in South Carolina have been for years criticized by, you know, certain Republican journalists and members as, as rhinos, right? Republican mm-hmm. in name only. Um, and, and for many years, you know, Nikki Haley, to her credit, when she was our governor, now she's running for president, but when she was our governor, to her credit, the, the idea of the, the bathroom bills came up and she said, no, you know, that's just not a priority for South Carolina. And because of that, Netflix moved all of their filming from North Carolina to South Carolina. And so, you know, Outer Banks is actually filmed in my backyard, <laughs> even though it's supposed to be set in North Carolina. Um, and so you see South Carolina is actually this lurch to the right is fairly recent for us. Mm-hmm. And so we are actually still benefiting from sidestepping some of those issues, you know, a couple administrations ago. Um, I do think, you know, to, again, sort of to, to credit the more business minded Republicans, we're, we're passing a hate crimes bill this year. Now, is it embarrassing that we're one of the last two States to have one? Of course it's ridiculous, but there is a recognition that, the more we pass, you know, and talk about guns and abortion and everything else, to your point, we also need to be what it is, you know, and, and whether the hate crimes bill passes because it's the right thing to do or because they feel like it's the message we need to send to businesses, I don't really care. We'll have it on the books and, a, you know, another tool for law enforcement and prosecutors to use to make sure that, uh, you know, the next Dylan Roof could be prosecuted here in state court rather than having to go federal. Yeah. You know, speaking of being prosecuted, you were a, a prosecutor. Um, I was at an event last night where a district attorney uh, from a county was there. And we're talking about it's a very tough position when you work for a district attorney or your prosecutor, um, both in terms of the actual work, which is time consuming, and the, the mental health <laughs> aspects of it, because some of the cases are draining, just mentally and emotionally yeah. draining. Um, how can Democrats, or anyone really, but how, how can we push for um, good prosecutors? What does that mean? Because you don't want to be political, right? You don't want to right. – how do you make right. that a good position and attract the right kind of people without making it too political of a position? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of things. It starts from the top, right? The federal loan forgiveness program is very important. And I know there's a lot of conversations about how to balance that program, you know, how to balance the budget of that program. I would encourage people not to be be too quick to dismiss, you know, I know lawyers and doctors have this earning potential, so sometimes it feels ridiculous to forgive loans for lawyers and doctors, but I could have never afforded my 
law school loans had it not been for the loan forgiveness program allowing me to work in the prosecutor's office. So it starts at the top with our federal policies and then it's, you know, it goes all the way down. Um, here in Charleston County, we are a blue county in a red state. Uh, same with Richland County, which is where Columbia is. And um, so you see those offices, you know, tend to have, you know, our, our elected, we call it a solicitor here, but same, it's a DA. Um, our elected solicitor here is, you know, pretty moderate. She does a lot of work with, uh, you know, racial bias training for her prosecutors. She's, she's made statistics for her office available based on race and every other, you know, looking at that as a factor so the public can also see what's going on. And I think it takes, uh, you know, it, it takes leadership like that to make sure that then the, the sort of frontline prosecutors are, um, you know, feel like this is a, a, something exciting that they want to be a part of, right? Because the reality is you're going to have young people. The, the people in those jobs are going to be fairly young, out of school, looking to get trial experience. I mean, these are jobs that pay maybe half of what you could make in the private sector. So you've got to have the, you know, I'm, my loan, my student loan payments were something like uh, $1,500 a month. Mm. Um, and you're, and you're making 5,000 a year, right? So the loan forgiveness is key, but also the, the, the feeling that you're, you're getting experience, you're part of something that's important. All of that really matters. Um, you know, but there's gotta be a recognition that, that this is, this is going to be a training ground for young and, and you'll have some career prosecutors. My husband was a prosecutor for 25 years before he left. So you'll have some career prosecutors who, you know, take over in leadership roles. Um, but I think, I, I think it just starts with, with leadership and making it something you're probably never going to match the salary, but as long as you couple the loan forgiveness with it being a place that people want to be a part of, I think you'll hopefully, you know, see, see good people coming in there that really want to make a difference. Yeah. My district attorney, he said very similar answer. Like he was talking about someone in his office who just got their loans forgiven and how mm -hmm. important it was, how they celebrate, had an event for her and everything like that. I imagine, <laughs> yeah. I, I, not, I imagine that being a prosecutor and being married to a prosecutor, I, I don't know how often you would not be arguing about just everything at that point. <laughs> just <laughs> like, what do yeah, we have for we dinner? Have like, what do we do this? together now? And so, you talk about, I mean, we take our work home probably more than we do. <laughs> okay. Now, you mentioned crumbling infrastructure, and you, more than other people in the country, have a crumbling infrastructure, if you want to put it that way, that's very specific because of the coastal communities. Um, how are you able to be an effective advocate for that? Uh, is that something that you're able to get support from in the legislature or are they, or is it kind of a pushback because, well, that's not where we care about. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, well, I will say that the infrastructure in South Carolina has gotten so bad that it's obvious. It's undeniable at this point. Yeah. I saw right? you mention about it online. And so, so it, it's nobody, nobody can with a straight face say, that we don't need to invest in our roads and bridges and drainage systems, right? Mm -hmm. And even water and sewer. Um, but yeah, the real government. answer, yeah, if you're local the government, real you know answer, yeah, exactly, exactly. The real answer is that we are forever indebted to President Biden and the Democrats who passed these, you know, everything from ARPA to the infrastructure to 
you know, all of these spending bills are going to, frankly, make the investments, you know, whether it's in the low country down here in Charleston or, you know, in the upstate, which tends to be more Republican controlled, um, we're going to be using that money. Um, you know, we voted to spend almost all of our ARPA money on water and sewer infrastructure because, again, chronically underfunded for decades. Uh, you know, when I was in local government, we realized we didn't even know where our sewer pipes were and our water lines. I mean, mm-hmm. the former public works director just knew it in his head, right? But they weren't on paper or GIS, <laughs> God forbid. And yeah. So, um, you know, but again, that interplay between everything, it, it all matters. Federal, state, and local working together have to get it done. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, um, you know, the Charleston delegation is largely democratic. And so there is a little bit of pushback up in, you know, up in Columbia, because there's a perception that we have all the money, right? Like, oh, well, down in Charleston, you guys have all the tourism dollars. But what people don't realize is that most of that goes to state level, you know, sales tax goes up to the state, uh, accommodation taxes go to the state, right? So it's, we've got to sort of get that investment back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, there is a recognition, but at the end of the day, you know, we generate between us and Horry County, which is where Myrtle Beach is, we generate some insanely high percentage of the state revenues. And so there is, there's a recognition that dollars need to be reinvested back, whether it's in beach renourishment, bridges, drainage systems, and water and sewer projects. So again, it's, it's never a straight line. It's always, okay, where can we pull dollars from the federal investments and couple that with local? And, um, you know, it's never a straight line from A to B, but we are catching up to some extent on, on delayed or deferred investments. Now, I know that the issues that you have with the coastal communities are not necessarily always climate related. Um, but uh, it, anything on a coastal community is climate related and it's such yeah. a, a highly charged political issue, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And to the point where, you know, I, I find a lot of people on the right will just not support anything that is a, attached to climate change, even though like that keeps people in their homes, keeps tourism, right. business, et cetera. Right. Um, do you find that if you want to be successful, you're good at arguing, you're good at writing in your, in your professional career, like, developing the language not so much for your people back home but for the legislature of yeah this is for doing x y and z in order to get it done it's so funny that you say that when i was city administrator down in folly i had a strict policy that staff was not to use the word climate change and mm. we did not we did not use we didn't talk about sea level we didn't talk about climate change we talked about flood mitigation because everything that you're going to do to address now Resilience has become another word that we use, but um, we talk about, you know, we talk about business investments, right? All South Carolina has had billions of dollars in private investments over the past six months as a result of this money coming down from Washington and these incentives. But yeah, we don't talk about it in terms of climate change. We talk about it in terms of new business investments. Um, You know, South Carolina just this year became the leading, I'm sorry, just this month, uh, became the leading producers of, of, I think, cars and tires. But what doesn't what doesn't necessarily get the headlines, but is important about that, is that these private businesses, it is more profitable. Google, for example, they want renewable energy. 
um, it is is more it is more cost effective for them to be using renewable energy, right? Volvo is here, um, Boeing is here, right? These are companies that their bottom line and and renewable energies or addressing climate change they go hand in hand. And so I just got back from uh, a tour of a facility this morning called Ingevity. And they're making some real, you know, they just were named, um, they've got the gold standard and whatever the eco, I don't know the right jargon, but you know, this is a a cool company that's investing here in South Carolina, making these renewable products, but we don't talk about it in terms of climate change. And I think, frankly, you've got to talk about it in terms of new job creation, investment in our communities, investment, you know, manufacturing is a bipartisan job creator, right? These are, these are great jobs that we can have in rural communities, just like we can have in urban communities. And so, uh, you know, we talk about it in terms of flood mitigation, job creation, you know, and, and, and stewardship is a big thing down here, right? Um, to the extent that the Republican party is still very much connected to the religious, you know, Christian evangelical talking about it in terms of stewardship of the earth, stewardship of the resources, um, I think is also a really powerful message. Um, and you know, of course down in Charleston, we can talk about it in terms of the economy because tourism is our economy. Do you think it would be important for Democrats nationally to just be considering that language? Like it's more important to be effective than to be right. I think, right? Like, Oh my gosh. I say that all the time. Are you in my brain? (laughs) (laughs) I reached out to you because I was like, this is a person who's talking about some issues in a state I don't talk to about. We have a lot in common. So (laughs) if you want to come up and play super smash brothers or something, we can do that. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, yeah, I I cannot overemphasize how important it is. You know, so much of the language and the talking points that get developed for the Demo- for Democrats get developed in places like California that, that are rightly leading on these issues, but they've got to remember that the rest of the country is not there. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we have to rebrand Democrats, at least if we're ever going to be successful again down in, you know, southern states, midwestern states. Um, you know, we do such a great job of coming up with thoughtful, awesome policies, right? It's not just environmental issues, equity issues, right? These are absolutely issues that matter and, and we should be talking about them. But the second you call someone a racist, they, their brain turns off, right? Mm-hmm. But when you talk about bias, when you talk about inherent biases, I'm biased, you're biased, we're all biased, we're born with it. We're not born with it, but we learn it at a very young age. And when we start talking about it in terms of, you know, hey, I, I'm biased just like you. This isn't something, you're not a bad person. Um, you know, you're not, same with climate change, right? You're not a bad person because you didn't recycle that. It's just that we're all trying to work on this together. And so I really wish that as Democrats nationally, we would stop all this sort of you're a bad person game because we're never going to make games down here in places with, you know, a super minority of, of, of Democrats down here. You know, we're a super majority Republican state. And whereas the rest of the country gained or, or, or the Democrats outperformed in places like South Carolina, we were losing seats hand over fist because Democrats nationally just do not align with what most people down here are looking for. And, and it's an important point, but it's also really hard when anyone can be seen as a national Democrat. Like if you are um, Samantha 
whatever from Minnesota and you tweeted out something, they're like, oh, look at that <laughs> yeah. person, this activist in Minneapolis. Like, right, right. No one's ever right, heard of her right, before. Right. She might be a great person, right, but right. that's something you can't really fight but against. But that one tweet. Right. Yeah, and I'm sure I've got tweets out there that you could point to that I'm like some sort of crazy activist, right? But, um, you know, the, the leadership and the message, and, I, you know, again, to President Biden's credit, he's always hewed this path. He's always mm-hmm. said, no, this is a battle for the soul of our country. This is, you know, we are the, you know, we are the party of working class families. And, if, and the more we stay focused on that, um, you know, the more we can have conversations, frankly, rather than finger pointing. Yeah. Um, I, I've seen a number of people who after the two years are like, wow, I didn't realize how much you got done once you put it down on paper. And that's part of it is kind of, you know, sliding things through, not making a big deal out of the fights and more about the answers. That's right. That's right. Now, that's right. Not focus. Yeah. Not focusing on what divides us, but you know, what we do have in common, which is a lot more. Unfortunately, I do want to talk about one thing that is dividing and you did make it mention earlier is abortion rights. And you have been talking about it. Yeah. I saw a number of people. It's been very recent <laughs> in South Carolina. What, and it's happening in legislatures across the country. What do you think people need to know and, you know, what should people do to prepare to protect women's rights? Well, not just women's rights, because it's oh, yeah. family rights. It's, it's, it's right. human rights. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a couple things there. One, South Carolina is not alone in proposing this legislation. I know you know that. These are popping up all over the country, and I'll tell you why. When South Carolina had its ad hoc hearing on, uh, we sorry, formed an ad hoc committee, the speaker formed an ad hoc committee after Roe, or something, I don't remember. Um, the only invited expert to speak at that hearing, not a doctor, not a disability specialist, not a you know, maternal fetal health care provider, a lawyer from the National Right to Life, right? And, and she advocated for RICO-style prosecution, right? That's what federal U.S. attorneys use to go after gangs and the mafia and kingpins, you know, not doctors and women and their families. <laughs> and so she advocated for this RICO-style prosecution. And what I have learned and seen over the past few years about these bills is frankly, they're not interested in the best interests of our South Carolina families, women, any of that. Each of these bills from South Carolina to Tennessee to Alabama, and of course, Texas was the one in the news, each have a provision of $10,000 in damages. Now, they're all a little bit different for how it gets collected, right? Texas was the famous bounty. You know, anybody could come in and sue and get the $10,000 bounty. But that same $10,000 figure is in all of these bills. Tennessee has it. South Carolina has it in the most recent ban that we passed and in previous versions of this bill. And what it allows is a plaintiff. Now, you know, again, South Carolina's is a little bit more narrow. It only gives standing to a woman and her family, I think. Um, But a plaintiff comes in and they can sue the doctor, the nurse, the hospital. If it's our state hospital, they can sue the state. And it it provides for statutory damages. Well, guess who the lawyers are in these cases? It's the Alliance Defending Freedom. It's National Right to Life. And so guess who takes a third of all the collections in these cases? Alliance Defending Freedom raised $54 million last year in litigation and fundraising, right? And the same thing goes for the medical ethics bill that they shopped. After they 
profited from the case, the, I think it was the Rojas case up in Illinois. You know, Illinois has had that medical ethics law on the books since the 70s. But you, you didn't see them pushing that idea to other states until they profited, I don't know, something like $400,000 was the settlement for that one plaintiff. So they take a third, and now all of a sudden that's big business. And they're not shy about the fact that these state legislative battles go hand in hand with their litigation strategies. That's on the record. That's how they push. You know, that's they wrote the bill in Mississippi that formed the basis for Dodds. Right. Like this is this is not a secret. It's just something we're not talking about enough. Mm. And we've got to talk about the fact that these national organizations aren't just pushing it because they're like strong believers in abortion rights or I'm sorry, in I don't know. Human, you know, life beginning at conception, um, they're pushing it because this is big business. Mm-hmm. We've got to talk about that and and connect the dots that these bills are all related and they're all written by the same think tanks, right? The, Alec writes a lot of them, but, you know, Alliance Defending Freedom is who pushed medical ethics, abortion, the transgender sports ban, all of, you know, and they also simultaneously represent the plaintiffs suing under these new laws. So we got to talk about that more. Well, and I'm sure for those legislators who, one, like you said, they're in gerrymandered districts, um, but two, like those legal organizations or advocacy organizations with air quotes, um, them making money means that those legislators feel like they will either get a job there in the future or they will get campaign contributions. Like that doesn't hurt them of those places to get money. Right. And, and the flip side of that is they will primary the hell out of a Republican who doesn't toe the line. Mm. Right. So the flip side of that is a lot of that, you know, some of that money is going in the organization's pockets, but a lot of it's going into Republican primary elections, which is why you see, 100% 100% of Republicans voting for abortion bans, 100% of Republicans voting. Whether they personally agree with it or not, I watched friends of mine get primaried in the last election because they didn't support the transgender sports ban because, you know, they recognized that this wasn't a real problem that we were addressing. So it's it's bad. And, and it, I think there's two solutions, and one of them is redistricting, and we have got to be focusing our, you know, the Republicans built up the um, infrastructure and the, you know, they focused on state legislatures 10 years ago in preparation for the last round of redistricting. And we've got to be doing the same now. You know, we've officially got seven years until the next census, which makes it, I don't know, eight or nine years till the next redistricting. Mm-hmm. We got to be focused on state legislatures. We got to be focused on relationships with the establishment to Republicans to help them understand what drawing an R30 district means for their governance, right? It doesn't mean that they're going to have a business-focused Republican. The same person governs differently in an R7 district versus an R30 district. Yeah. So we, we, it's got to come down to redistricting and, and connecting the dots on what these national organizations are doing in terms of their legislative pushes. Yeah, we had a senator, Republican senator, who by all extent, like, pretty moderate, was well-liked by Democrats and Republicans, uh, very powerful. And he lost his primary after redistricting this year by 15 votes to a person who only cared about anti-CRT school district stuff. And uh, it's really unfortunate. Now, that person became the new governor's budget secretary, which is great. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. He worked with Republican senators, but it's just uh, mm-hmm. it's a very the incentive structure is terrible. Um, but let's incentivize yeah. people yeah. to not give up and run for office. You're in a tough situation in the minority. A lot of people might say, "Why do it?" And there are a lot of states where, the, like, really, it's a lot of work. It's a lot on your family. Why would you yeah. encourage others to run for office, whether it's state legislature or anything else? Three reasons. First of all, when you run for office, turns out people have to listen to you now, uh, right? So, like, it used to be that when I had an opinion about, I don't know, the school district or local government or even state issues, I could scream them into the wind, but, like, it didn't really move the needle. Now... I just tweeted a speech on, on, on guns and, you know, I got to say my opinion on that and let's see how many people have looked at it. Uh, 30,000 people have seen it, right? So it's been retweeted 300 times, right? So it's a platform for your voice. And I know, especially for women, sometimes it can be hard, right? Because we're like, how do I get a platform? How do I get people to, how do I get a seat at the table? And frankly, running for office is a very good way to do that. Number two, this is especially local and state level offices. You have no idea the way your voice, you know, I was able to be at the table negotiating a bond reform bill. Now, is it perfect? Do I love it? No, but it's a lot better than it was. And I'm just one person out of 124, but because I work hard, do my homework, build relationships, I get to have a voice on that. Right. And so the second thing is that it's a relatively small pond, especially if you get involved in a local or state level. Um, you, you have the opportunity to sort of be the, the conscience for the body, right? Um, I used to say when I was a prosecutor that I, I couldn't do a good job. I couldn't be a zealous prosecutor or, or not zealous, but like a, I guess, zealous advocate for justice without knowing that there was an awesome public defender on the other side, keeping me straight, making sure that, you know, I wasn't going outside the lines, right? And I think it's the same case here, even being in the, I don't know if super minority is the right word, but the same deal here. And then third, because, you know, we have got to do the work. We've got to be doing the work. We've got to be, we've got to be out there if we ever want anything to change. And the more people that stand up and say, okay, no, now I'm, I'm done being a casual observer. I'm here to do the work. Even if what you do is run, you know, my friend Annie Andrew ran for Congress last year. She's a pediatrician. She's amazing. She wasn't successful. But for a year, her message was out there, shaping conversations. Mm-hmm. And you bet that Nancy Mace, her opponent, who is in Congress still, who would you know, end up winning, you bet that her campaign was moderated knowing she had a strong opponent on the other side. You know, you bet she didn't, she didn't support, all of a sudden now, she didn't support a complete ban on abortion anymore because she had somebody that was going to call her out on that. She had somebody that had a platform and a microphone to make sure that she was staying in alliance. And so it really matters. We just, we got to do the work. Uh, this is the work that Republicans thought to do, you know, 10, 20 years ago, building up power in state legislatures where nobody thought it mattered. And now we see, oh, guess what? They draw the congressional maps. They, they draw the, the maps that elect, you know, all all these people. So, um, it matters and we've we've just got to be doing the work now. And sometimes it is a little thankless, but, um, opportunity to, to be out there and have your voice heard is, is, is somewhat of a reward in the short term and what I hope will be a a larger impact in the long term. 
Well, I thank you for running, and I thank you for being there and being a voice. <laughs> I've learned a lot from about South Carolina and what you can get done. Um, so before I go, if you if people want to follow you, learn more, uh, maybe be in touch and get yeah. inspiration, what's the best way they can follow in and engage you? All right. So I don't really like Twitter. I have a Twitter. I think it's Rep Webmore, but my Instagram is actually my best one. And I'm looking to see what my actual Instagram name here is. Oh, it's just Spencer Webmore. Easy. Uh, so you can follow me on Instagram, Spencer Webmore. Um, you can you can follow me on Twitter, although I'm not great at tweeting. Um, and then I think I have a Facebook page too, which is also just Spencer Wetmore. Um, definitely encourage people to stay involved. Uh, I put out a weekly update every week or at least a video from session that week. Um, and I think especially folks in South Carolina that want to know what's going on in their state house, um, I encourage them to follow along. Well, great. I really appreciate it. Honestly, as I'm sitting here, I was typing up some notes. I could have asked you like three hours worth of questions and I I appreciate you. I don't have enough bandwidth on my computer to record that anyway. Uh, so thank you so much for what you've yeah. done. I hope if anyone's listening, they'll be encouraged to run for office too. Don't be afraid to send me a message if you want some advice. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. And uh, please Alrighty. like it, share, subscribe, and maybe you should run, run wherever you are.